again and welcome to the second minute of As If, the podcast about Clueless, where we talk about Clueless minute by minute. I am Darren, your host, uh, and with me today is Phil Gonzalez. Hello, Phil. Hello there. And Shannon Camp. Hello, Shannon. Hi, glad to be back. And in this second minute, we start with Cher sitting at her vanity, uh, and then she skips over to her closet, and we finish the minute with Cher and Mel uh, discussing Josh her ex-stepbrother uh, and in between we get a little we, we get to meet Cher's father we also meet uh, another iconic character in this scene Cher's yellow plaid suit oh yeah <laughs> yes She's which so has fancy. a life of its own <laughs> so let's let's start at the beginning of this which is um first of all we get a great music choice because we get fashion by David Bowie of course um which comes in just as kids in America has faded out and Cher is telling us her daily routine. She gets up, she brushes her teeth, she picks out her school clothes. And she uses what? <laughs> a CRT touchscreen. <laughs> yeah. Which had a she brief uses... window. You don't... <laughs> Just... <The> CRT <laughs> touchscreen was like this thing that existed, but good luck finding one? Because... <laughs> wow. What a technology that did not take off. I was going to say, to me, this this seems unrealistic. Like, I don't ever remember... CRTs having a touchscreen capability. So I think that's you know I think that's the point though. I mean you see later on her giant rotate rotating wardrobe, which looks like a laundromat, you know, where they can rotate all the clothes through behind the back uh counter. I think the computer with like the outfit matching program that helps her put together her looks is supposed to kind of play on like the fantasy element of her life because let me tell you as a young woman who watched this you know at countless sleepovers (laughs) as soon as this scene came on everyone would go oh i wish i had one of those oh i that's so cool and now i'm like not only is this incredibly impractical and it would take (laughs) forever to pick out all your clothes (laughs) but like the fun of fashion is putting things together yourself And Cher even says later on that she always takes Polaroids of her outfits because she doesn't trust mirrors. So uh, it's it's hilarious. I think it's just meant to underscore that Cher lives, you know, kind of a princess life, the surreal world, if you will. It's it's literally Jetsons technology. Like for one brief (laughs) moment in this movie, we're in the 22nd century and then we're back to 1995 California because – it's it's the one little bit that kind of pulls me out because I feel it, it it's a little too cartoony, um, but I also yeah. get that they had to show a way where she was kind of outside of outside of practicality, and if they had had say like the maid dressing her, it would have added too much of a of a it would have been too weird like hierarchically. Maybe and I'm gonna robot? say this that. <laughs> that that would have been so great if she'd had like a robot butler. A robot butler. Um, but I'm going to say this: like um, the, the the funny thing that strikes me about this program is, um, aside from the fact that like, obviously it picks out the outfit that she's going to wear for the next uh, kind of like 20 minutes of this film, um, it, it is that it serves as foreshadowing for later on when she becomes you know a good person. Like seeing this and seeing all this kind of like all these clothes and everything that she could never possibly get through wearing all of these different outfits, um, even if her computer would allow her to. 
Um, okay, maybe this is taking things a little bit too far, but I think you could probably even make the argument that like every time we see Cher's closet, it kind of reflects her psyche. Like when she's a good person who's deburdening herself of all you like the unnecessary things she was worrying about and caring about other people, she's cleaning it out in this scene. You know, it's the complete focus of her attention at her lowest moment when she's just had her huge falling out with Ty. She's yelling at her yeah. maid Lucy, and all the clothes are on the floor, and she's standing mm. like ankle. Yeah. deep in piles of clothes where's my white collarless shirt from fred siegel <laughs> so i think it almost like reflects her state of mind why would she ever not yeah. know where any of her clothes are if it's all on the computer she threw them all on the ground <laughs> well it's not good technology yeah making the program completely useless because you would need to put a gps tracker on every piece of clothing for it to well, that's, realistically which obviously kind of, teenagers have now that's what the robot if, butler yeah. would have done if it had been if we're around. extrapolating yeah. forward from this this technology we're all like <laughs> flying around in our pantyhose or something i don't know there are essentially iphone versions of this program now but they require you to like upload a stock image of every piece of clothing that you own from the clothing retailer's website and like carefully crop it out yeah. Maybe I know this from firsthand experience. <laughs> well, she had to obviously wear each of these outfits in that specific pose she's doing for them to be layered onto the share in her underwear image that we get because We're... the they're like cutout dolls. Like each she had to <laughs> yeah. have stood in front of a camera wearing each article of clothing in that pose. You're giving this more thought than Amy Heckerling in, ever did. In order for it to work. <laughs> and so I'm like that's hours of that's hours of work on her part. Hours of Lucy's work. Do you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, stepping outside of this movie and referencing back to a previous um, film that we took apart minute by minute, um, I think that there's a young lady living somewhere between the beach and the forest in a <laughs> tiny little house <laughs> who has a program that would be suited exactly for this purpose. I don't know what you're uh, talking so about. <laughs> we've become unstuck in time. Oh, my God. So if, if, if Cher could get in touch with Tina... Uh, yes. via the beeping machine then um you know she could uh, she could she could scan all her clothes for her if you could go if if you could go back if you could edit in just 5 seconds of footage of a cat walking through <laughs> this movie and like looking up at her every, and then looking at the scene. screen and like shaking its head and walking <laughs> off uh, it would explain so much yep. um but yeah so we we've, we've got this we got this program which is hugely impractical um, and that, that offers a ton of options. It gives you shoes, jewelry, scarves, pantyhose, underwear, pants, sweaters. And then there's a button that says more. And I don't know what more there could be, but, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that she's got uh, put into this program for her to, to dress herself in. Um, and obviously we see her put on the, uh, the, the, the yellow, you know, plaid skirt outfit that she, she picks out. Um, and the computer approves of. This outfit has taken on a cultural life of its own, can I just say. <laughs> I have seen haute couture, like high, high fashion that emulates this outfit. I have seen, you know, a couple years ago there was that Iggy Azalea video that parodied Clueless and she was this was the outfit that she yeah. was wearing. It's uh, most frequently used for the promotional material and apparently Amy Heckerling went through like a bunch of different tartan plaids. Like they tried blue, didn't work. They tried red, weren't liking it and I'm really glad they landed on the yellow because it's so bright and so loud yes. that they ever would consider another color feels wrong and uh Yes, I do have two yellow plaid skirts in my own wardrobe at this very moment because <laughs> it's 
a look that uh, I think was partially inspired by the time because it's kind of like an upscale take on the grunge plaids, which is grunge style is something that Cher looks down a lot on the film. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. so not only was it drawing from the fashion of the time and repurposing it, but then it went on to kind of inspire more looks based off of it. Like, I think it's honestly one of the most iconic costumes in the modern American film canon. Oh, I, I would say if you if you asked me to to select a costume from a movie that exemplifies this era of filmmaking, I would I would just choose Cher's outfit from this. You see it and you know exactly where you are in time. And exactly who she is, too. And I don't want to skip ahead because but I'm not gonna be in this minute, but uh the button marked more, I'm going to yeah. assume it chooses the color of gum that matches the outfit you're wearing. <laughs> since her gum <laughs> is the exact shade of yellow as the rest of her outfit. I didn't think that yeah. anyone could be more obsessed with her clothes choosing program than my 12-year-old girlfriends were, but you two grown men have proven me wrong. <laughs> well, okay, let's get to the important part of this minute, which is the the introduction of her father. Yes. Mel! Um, and Cher, Cher gives us, uh, I believe they call it the 411, where he says, Daddy's a litigator. Those are the scariest kinds of lawyers. Even Lucy, our maid, is terrified of him. He's so good, he gets paid $500 an hour just to fight with people. And then, of course, um, because of the nature of Cher, she has to deliver the button that brings it back to her, where she says, he fights with me for free because I'm his daughter. Mm-hmm. So cute. As the daughter of a lawyer who got fought with for free plenty, gotta say, I've always particularly enjoyed this part. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, Mel, this $500 an hour thing, uh, like, I did kind of like a calculation in my head, and I was like, that means he's making, like, he's, a, he's, he's billing at least, if he's billing about 60 hours a week, um, and if he's taking vacation time off, which he might not even bother doing, he's probably making about one and a half million a year, yeah. which is, you know, that that's a that's a huge sum of money. Although when you see the house later on, you understand that he probably could afford a bigger house like, you know, um, and in today's money, it would be seven hundred and seventy seven dollars an hour. Um, but it's, so it's, it's a huge amount of money. Um, and I think it's funny because obviously in films, sometimes people, they, they get given jobs that don't exist in the real world just so that the filmmakers don't have to worry about shooting in gigantic locations. Um, but in this one, I, th- I think um, Dan Hedaya does a good job of of acting the role of being a litigator, like oh, of yes. being scary. And, and I, I think, you know, he's perfectly cast um, kind of... I mean, he's opening lines where he he's kind of just arguing about like orange juice. Like, yeah. it's like he can't he can't just say you know what's going on. Like, he literally can't say good morning. He's just literally like you know, don't give me the orange juice and where's my briefcase and like the, the kind of the snappiness. He's never at rest. We never see him in a moment where he's not doing anything. Like, he's always doing at least two or three things at once. Um, Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a lot of scenes in the movie, but he definitely, you know, makes them all count. There's the one where he has his team of lawyers and he's like drinking and writing and yelling at Cher and Josh at the same time. (laughs) There's the one where Cher's pacing outside his office and he's working at his desk. He's like, Cher, get in here. So (laughs) he's pretty much always doing something. And I had the thought that like, even though he's definitely a tough guy and it seems like he's in charge, he also sort of feels like a guest in his own house. It always seems like he's kind of just moving through on his way to the next place. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, I love his line where he's like, <laughs> where Cher's like, 
we have to go out to Malibu. And he's like, don't tell me those brain dead lowlifes have been calling again. And Cher immediately is like, they're your parents. And I think that's <laughs> like this kind of, it's a weird kind of like, it's almost like a sitcom-y kind of like joke setup, joke setup in terms of, it's giving you information. It's giving you like exposition, but done in such a way that you're just like, and of yep. course they, 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 the foreshadowing at the end where they're like, Josh is in town, he's coming for dinner. And Mel says, and Cher's like, why? And he's like, because he's your stepbrother. And then Cher very pointedly says, you are hardly even married to his mother. And that was five years ago. And it's like, they're, te- they're telling you information, which could be mm-hmm. boring, but this, the chemistry between like these two actors and the way that they're delivering it. And, you know, particularly the way they're moving around the kitchen. And if it, it like, it doesn't feel like you're just being told information. It feels like, this is kind of like a conversation that they have like all the time where she's constantly trying to get him to do stuff and he's constantly right. resisting and fighting back. And they're just like physically chasing each other around that kitchen island. They're yeah. like moving yeah. around. She's chasing him. He's moving away from her constantly until the moment where the power balance shifts because he's scolding her about, you know, not being nice about her quote unquote stepbrother. Now, Dan Hedaya, I think he's, he's a great actor, but for, I don't know why this happened, but in 1995, he had no fewer than four films out at the cinema. Oh, yeah. He had Clueless, and then he had The Usual Suspects a month later. Uh, he had To Die For, which um, he's great in that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he finished the year in, in Nixon, um, and I can't quite remember who he played in that. He ended up playing Nixon, though, later on in a, in the movie Dick he played. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, that is like, that's, I love this performance in this film, but like Shannon said, he's, like, he's not in a great deal of scenes um, in Dick where he plays Nixon. With um, Kirsten Dunst and, and Michelle Williams, uh, where he's playing Nixon, I think he's great in that film as well. So they they had tried to get Jerry Orbach for the role, and they couldn't. Yeah. And then they wanted to get Harvey Keitel. I, oh, Harvey couldn't. Keitel! Harvey Keitel and teenage girls hanging out never makes anyone feel good. Well, they wanted someone who was they wanted someone who was immediately frightening but funny. Like, you know who I thought this was and... when I was a little girl? I watched this movie when I was so young. I can't even remember the first time I watched it. But I also, probably around the same time, watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And guess who I thought <laughs> he Bob was? Hoskins. I thought he was Bob Hoskins. <laughs> well, let me tell you. Let me tell you that Dan Hedaya, growing up, Dan Hedaya was, he's one of my hero actors. He's one of those actors whose names I didn't always know, but who has been one of my, if he shows up in something, I always knew he was going to be good. Like I consider him a hero actor. Like he's going to save a scene, even in a bad movie. I'm going to love what he's doing. Um, I knew him from cheers. I used yeah, to watch cheers yeah. when I was a kid. Was he Carla's he husband? Played, he played yeah. Nick Tortelli. Was he Carla's husband? Yeah. 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 He played Nick Tortelli. And then he had his own TV series called the Tortellis, which didn't <laughs> last very long, but which I watched as long as it was on. And so I always knew Dan Hedaya as this, like, very funny but very intense actor. And when he showed up as Cher's father in this, uh, I was delighted. Like, I'm delighted whenever he pops up in anything. Uh, moving on from Dan Hedaya to the character he's playing, I'd like to briefly touch on Cher's – or not Cher – I'm doing. I'm going to do this constantly. Say share when I mean Emma, and Emma when I mean share. I'd like to briefly touch on Emma's father, Mr. Woodhouse. Who oh yeah, absolutely. Is probably a bigger presence in the novel than Mel is in the movie, but that's because the movie has more of a focus on Cher's peers, whereas Emma is always interacting with people who are much, much older than her um, quite a lot of the time. But I thought it was so interesting how they kind of brought this character into the 90s uh mr woodhouse is 
a very sweet, gentle man who is an incredible worrier. If his daughter, you know, goes for a walk around the park, he's worrying about her being attacked by bandits and gypsies or, like, falling down and dying out there. And he hardly ever leaves the house. His um, older daughter, Isabella, who there is no older sister character in Clueless, uh, uh, he, she has to come visit him because he won't even leave the house to go see her and his grandchildren. He's a hypochondriac. He's like always wrapping himself in shawls and blankets and worried about being sick. And I thought the way that Amy Heckerling translated this into kind of like, again, I was very young in the 90s, but I think the 90s was kind of when we got the rise of like this more healthy lifestyle thing, you know, yeah. uh, the rise of these trendy diets and these certain products and all of that jazz. Uh, so to make Mel instead be a guy who actually does have legitimate health problems with his heart and to have Cher constantly be trying to get him to be healthier, I thought was a really funny twist, uh, kind of doing an exact opposite of what Mr. Woodhouse was like. Yeah, Mel, Mel isn't concerned about his own health at all. He, he was, I thought it was kind of a yeah. wink at the times. Like, uh, yeah. if Clueless is a satire of the of the '90s, which I would believe it to be, then I think that's what they're trying to go for here. Yeah, I do remember the '90s being the point at which everyone kept talking about cholesterol, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I like, I don't know what and that like, is, but all of a sudden, everyone is telling me about it. So I guess and like it must fiber exist. cereals, you know. Yeah, I always think of those. Yeah, it was definitely like, a cultural touch. Old yeah. SNL commercial with Phil Hartman, where he's eating like bowl after bowl of bran <laughs> until he's <laughs> sitting on top of a mountain of colon blow. But I think I think <laughs> I think it's it's funny that like because um, this is like I think the first couple of times that that Cher interacts with Mel. Like, it is this kind of thing of trying to get him to drink orange juice, trying to get him to see the doctor. Like, she's she's the one constantly... We see her as someone trying to k- kind of look out for her father. Um, uh, whereas, like, I'm guessing if I'm Mel, I don't know how much I'm putting in, you know, how much faith I'm putting in my daughter to be arranging doctor's appointments for me. Like, um, you know, he's like a 50-something-year-old man. I'm not sure that his teenage daughter should be the one... But the fact that he doesn't kind of care he about it. He probably has a secretary to do that. Yeah. He probably has a secretary to take care of the actual appointments. Yeah. But I, th- I think it's it's funny that she, like she's the one reminding him of this kind of stuff. Um, she takes care of daddy, as yeah. he says later on. You take such good care of daddy. <laughs> yeah. I think he lets her do it because, you know, it makes her feel good. Yeah. I'm sure on some level it has to make him feel good that she worries about him and looks out for him because, you know, he has no spouse um it doesn't really seem like he's even interested in finding another one although again we don't see him that much and he definitely doesn't seem to have a good relationship with any other members of his family so i don't think we're supposed to see mel as like a heartless person he definitely cares about josh and like thinks that family is important to an extent so i could see him you know humoring her because it's mutually beneficial yeah, and I think it's interesting that, like, um, you know, this film is very good at, as with the, as we, as we, you know, previously just discussed the, um, you know, the wardrobe reflecting Cher's state of mind, and that being kind of set up straight away in the first minute, and and uh, and the same thing here where Josh is mentioned, and he, I'm going to be honest with you, he's not going to turn up for like another eight or nine minutes, but they kind of they 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 set a lot of things up very early on in the film that all pay off by the end of the film uh and just like from a filmmaking point of view it's very elegant in the way that it does that in that 
it, it, people will get mentioned. Um, Christian will happen in a couple of minutes time where they'll mention Christian and we get the, the, the sitch on what on, on Christian and it's it's like almost 30 minutes before he turns up. Yeah, you kind of forget even that he was mentioned. Yeah. I think that's what's so great. They played all of his jokes, but you're really learning more about the world of the movie. Yeah, and I think I think that's something that this yeah. film is really good at is just setting things up and then having them pay off later on when you don't you don't even really think about them as as kind of uh, in that way. There's no uh, this is obviously a, you know a compliment. There is no Chekhov's gun in this thing. Like Chekhov's gun is is always a clumsy thing. It's always something obvious mm -hmm. that's going to pay off later on. Um, whereas it, I don't think there's anything in this film that serves as a Chekhov's gun. There's nothing where you're like, oh, it's obvious what's going to happen with that later on. It's always like, it always just feels like kind of organic uh, in terms of the film. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I really enjoy watching this film is because you never feel like Amy Heckling is 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 really pushing anything too much to the front it's always just you know this is Cher this is her life and eventually you'll find out you know who Josh is you'll find out who Christian is you know those are just coming down the line don't worry about them yeah. I don't think there's anything in Clueless that's out of place there's no loose ends or anything that feels unnecessary I think it's a film that's a you know maybe it's not like the Godfather or something, but it's a perfect film in the sense that it sets out to do a task and then it achieves that task in a very satisfying way, you know, like everything just kind of dovetails together perfectly, all the different intersecting plots, everything really comes together. And I think that's part of the reason why it's such a satisfying watch. And I think at this point, it's kind of appropriate, given as we've had a ton of voiceover and we've actually now got to see her interacting with another character to kind of talk uh, a bit more in depth about Alicia Silverstone, who at the time of this film, when it was shooting, was actually 18, even though she's playing 15, going on 16. Um, so it doesn't... Hey, at least she's not like 27. I was going to say, it doesn't fall, it doesn't fall into yeah. the trap of some teen movies of casting mid-20-year-olds, or, I don't know, was, was Stacey Dash 32 when this film was made or something? I choose to know as little about Stacey Dash <laughs> as possible. Yeah. <laughs> like I said last minute, this is a documentary, and I've heard that Dion is going through some stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting how quickly, like, Alicia Silverstone rose. Uh, like, the, 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 like, Clueless is kind of like um, uh, the first kind of peak of her career. Uh, maybe some might say the only peak of her career where... Mm. I was going to say. She kind, of came, she kind of came out of nowhere with, with um, The Crush... If any, if either of you have seen that film with um, Carrie Elwes, oh yes, absolutely not. Um, and obviously, she did crazy and crying and amazing like those those um, Aerosmith videos. Which, if you if you were a, a kid in the in the in the nineties watching any music channel, you you just remember those videos being on all the time. And I have to say, whenever one came on, I would have to watch it to the end because they were just so kind of um, mesmerizing. Uh, I don't know they. Yeah, no, but they, they just kind of told little stories. And you were like, this is... And also, Alicia Silverstone, you were just like, who is this? As Amy Heckling said, you know, get me the Aerosmith girl. Because that's how she became, like, so kind of famous. At a time when I think MTV was kind of at its peak of just playing music videos. Um, I think that the success of Clueless was a double-edged sword for her career. Because Cher is such an indelible character that you almost can't not see her as share and i think that was probably a problem later on down the line yeah 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 and i think that i think that alicia silverstone is uh i think she's somewhat limited as an actor yeah that's uh, fair 
I think that if she doesn't get cast in the absolute perfect role, that she just comes across as she just kind of fades into the background. Um, she was such a presence on MTV, like it can't be overstated. She was seemed to be in every single music video because they played those videos in constant rotation. That by the time Clueless came out, like, she was just part of our cultural landscape. Like we knew who she was. Yeah. And uh, and much like the Noxima girl from the last episode, <laughs> uh, we just knew her as the Aerosmith girl. Like she was the Aerosmith girl. And I was when this movie came out, I was 19 years old. And uh, I remember seeing Alicia Silverstone on MTV for the first time and just immediately falling in love. Like she was one of the most just she had so much screen presence. Like you just couldn't stop watching what she was doing. And uh, and I think that that actually ended up playing against her because she hit so hard, not as an actor, but just as an yeah. icon that there was really nowhere for her to go after this. She was an it girl, you know? It's that whole idea, the Clara Bow, do you have yep. it? And, like, she had it, but the thing about being the it girl is that as soon as you're it, they're looking for the next it. <laughs> it girl, yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting that, like, she won MTV Movie Awards for The Crush, and then she won Best Female and Most Desirable Female, um, wait, at the MTV wait, Movie Awards wait, in wait, 95. Wait, there was a category yes. called Most Desirable Female? Most Desirable Female and... MTV Movie Awards. <laughs> most Fun Desirable Female man. and Most Desirable Male. Now, here's the thing. Alicia Silverstone was the last Most Desirable Female. Uh, they stopped... Yeah, she, she broke, broke yeah. it. <laughs> because she broke the mold. She broke she it. it, girl. They stopped, they stopped awarding it after 1995, but... I'm going to make a confession here. In college, because this came out after my freshman year in college... In college, my sophomore year, I had – it's the, the only poster I ever had of a woman, like just, you know, like a woman poster, was of Alicia Silverstone in her Clueless costume on my wall in my dorm. <laughs> it's the only time I've ever had a poster of a – like just like a girly poster, and it was of Alicia Silverstone from Clueless because I was so taken by her. She was, she was the most desirable you. female, so – um, yeah, that's I mean, true. Even yeah. as a heterosexual woman who, you know, for me, this movie is all about Paul Rudd in terms of like the heartthrob factor. <laughs> but I'll say even as a straight woman, she does have this sort of like, you just can't stop looking at her. She's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's not just the fact that she's a classic beauty. I really think it is it. It's that undescribable je ne sais quoi. It's a sort of charisma that either you have it or you don't and she has it at least yeah. in this film uh but yeah. speaking of paul rudd i would like to talk a little bit about josh and Cher's relationship since this is the first mention of him <laughs> and as darren said they like are being very careful about how they're framing his entrance into the story well so i was gonna say like his his full entrance is is being covered or will be covered in in three very you know very very detailed minutes so i don't want to get too much into that but yeah I, can i just talk about the nightlies i won't even get into josh yeah the in the in the i was gonna say in emma it's a different relationship that the, that they have between yeah. emma and and her love interest and so for the film they've obviously changed it and i think it uh, does tie into what we were talking about a little bit in terms of Cher and mel's relationship in emma emma has an older sister named isabella and Isabella marries John Knightley, 
uh, John has, uh, I actually think George Knightley, who's the Mr. Knightley, might be his older brother, but I'm not 100% sure. I don't think the sisters married them in age order. Um, I was going to say, it was another I was going to say, well, I was going to say this, um, Shannon, when it comes to the identification of um, children, uh, the oldest is always called Mr. And then the youngest is called Master. And then the younger is called by their first name. Well, then, so yeah, then Mr. Mr. Knightley, Mr. Knightley is definitely would be the oldest. John's older brother. Yeah. That's really good to know. Yeah. And that is what yeah. I thought. So uh, Isabella marries John. They have three children, the youngest of which is a newborn baby who's actually born during the course of the novel who's named Emma. So her name is Emma Knightley, which is obviously foreshadowing for <laughs> Emma and Mr. Knightley getting together. And they have a moment where the two of them are holding the baby because they're his aunt and uncle and they're like, giving each other shit but you realize you know that they're falling in love so in the novel the josh character would be Cher's brother-in-law's brother not her ex-stepbrother there are a couple of things in the adaption that maybe don't work quite as well and i personally don't have a problem with the ex-stepbrother thing but it is something that the film definitely has to tread very carefully around because <laughs> if there were any suggestion of Josh, you know, taking advantage of Cher's trust in him, then it would be a different ball game. But of course, we see, you know, that, and I won't get too much into Josh because he's not in this minute, but he doesn't take advantage of the fact that they have this familial relationship in their past, at least. I was going to say, like, they mention it a couple of times in terms of their relationship in the film. But mostly it's just, you know, he's around like they they don't they they don't spend too much time kind of emphasizing uh, the sibling relationship yeah. in that way. They kind of just keep it as right. a kind of like, um, you know, a kind of playful, uh, I, I guess you'd say like fast talking kind of like rom-com style relationship where they're constantly back and forth. And they they kind of rarely let it settle on the fact that these two are meant to be siblings, um, you know, from a previous relationship. It's such an odd thing that watching the movie the first time before not knowing anything about Emma, I had I had always assumed that it had to have been taken from the novel. I was like, this has to be something that I guess back in the day wasn't uncomfortable or as weird. And they had to work <laughs> it into the movie somehow. So and then to find out later that, no, actually, it made a lot. It was a lot yeah. less awkward yeah. in the novel. Like, I was like, oh, they, they actually made this an uncomfortable situation just so they didn't have to write in uh, extra characters. Uh, my yeah. copy of Emma is printed all over with chairs, just chairs. And some people have looked at my copy of Emma and go, why is it covered in chairs? And that's because the moment Emma realizes she's in love with Mr. Knightley is after, you know, they've had their falling out she's looking around the house and she sees the chair where he always sat and realizes that it's no good without him in it and the house isn't any good without him in it. And I love that the way Amy Hackerling kept that in the film was by having Josh just always like loafing about. Like he's either sitting on the couch watching the <laughs> yeah. news or like rummaging through the pantry, like eating cereal straight out of the box with his hands. It's so it is funny. Like the more we talk about it, really it she did such an amazing job sticking with Emma that it's just crazy that Jane Austen wasn't credited in this movie. I will say, if you buy the film on iTunes, where it says, like, artist, it's Jane Austen. 
If you buy ah, Clueless, you not Amy Heckerling, it's Jane Austen. <laughs> it's credited as the creator of Clueless. So justice in the 21st century. <laughs> well, do you think they may have been afraid that if they had credited Jane Austen, like if it had, if it had gotten out in pre-publicity that people might have been, they were afraid people might have been turned away, like not knowing what they were Or people might have yeah. judged it more see. harshly because people are very attached to their classics. You know, if they had gone in saying not, oh, let me meet these characters, but oh, let me see how they changed Emma and how they changed Harriet and how they right. changed Mr. Knightley, then people are going to be yeah. bothered by that. So I can kind of understand why they did it. It's just hilarious because like this movie is Emma. There's no two ways around it. <laughs> Are either of you just fans of teen movies? Like, do you enjoy other teen movies? Because for me, I never went to high school in America. So any film set at high school in America may as well be, you know, The Martian. Like, it's a, it's a completely different <laughs> place that I'm never going to go to and I've never been to and that is essentially out of my reach. Um, so they always fascinated me because... Um, you know, it always seemed so much more exciting than any school that I was in, um, mostly because I live in a tiny country and, um, you know, people don't get we don't have people driving at like 16, you know. So the idea of like all these kids driving around to these gigantic schools um, in gigantic know, always, cars. <laughs> yeah, in gigantic cars. It just always interested yeah. me. And it was it's always a. I mean, I counted um, how many teen films I actually own. And depending on how you define some films, um, you know, I think I own about 30 to 40 teen films. So, you know, I'm a, fa right. I'm a fan of the genre. I'm, you know, from, uh, so, you know, are there other teen films that kind of you think are at least as good as Clueless or that you enjoy as much as Clueless? Well, uh, being a child of the 90s, I mean, that was kind of the, the first wave of super teen movies. Like we had all the all the real John Hughes films and uh, and all of its spin-offs and all the inspired movies. I mean, to me, there was never a time without teen movies. They were just, they were part of, they're, they're just, they're a genre in and of themselves. And between say anything in 1989 and clueless in 1995, there was nothing. Yeah. I mean, there was, unless you wanted to count Encino man as a teen <laughs> movie. Oh, Bill and Ted's too. Uh, but Bill and Ted's too, like, <laughs> yeah. pump up the volume, but that was more, like, uh, a weird, like, political statement. Like, there was nothing. Like, there was this dry spell, and uh, and we uh, – to, to, to answer your question, yeah, like, teen movies are very important because they were – they showed us what teens were supposed to be, like, <laughs> because I watched them – well, because I watched them before I was a teen, really. Yeah. And then I watched – and then there was a gap. And then I watched them kind of at the end of my teen years. Nothing ever was around that really reflected me. So they either informed me or they reminded me. But so they've always either been like something to aspire to or something to be afraid of or something to be nostalgic about. Yeah. Um, that's kind of where they've always been for me. I was going to say, I don't know when Welcome to the Dollhouse came out, but I think that was probably just after well, Clueless, wasn't it? Around that area. Clueless and Kids came out in the yeah. same year. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I feel like I kind of uh, go back and forth on teen movies. Like, for me, they're very hit or miss. I tend to either love them or not. I think a couple things really make Clueless stand out from the other teen movies I love, maybe with the exception of Heathers, which I haven't seen as many times, but I still really, really enjoy, and I relate to some of the issues in it. 
Yeah. When I watched teen movies as a teen, usually a young teen, like, you know, because you're looking ahead to what high school is going to be like, you're aspiring to be like these characters, I didn't really watch them with a critical eye because, you know, I was a child. And now when I go back and watch some of the teen movies that I really loved, like uh, John Hughes's 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, and The Breakfast Club, maybe particularly in this category, I really don't enjoy them as much as I did then. It's hard not to get distracted Mm -hmm. by the weird sexism that kind of pops up in those movies, the kind of inelegant way certain social issues are dealt with. Uh, There's a lot of, like not consensual sexual contact in John Hughes movies, which is played off as jokes like Bender putting his face in Claire's skirt or um, Anthony Michael Hall's nerd character drugging and having sex with that drunk popular girl in 16 Candles, even though she doesn't remember what happened the next morning. But she's like, I guess I enjoyed it. So So it's hard for me to enjoy those movies. Whereas with Clueless, the bloom has not gone off the rose. Like it really stands above the rest of the pack because I can still watch it now. I do all the time. I enjoy it just as much, if not more than uh, when I was a kid. And actually, I remember watching it on a plane once. I was flying from just Chicago to New York because I was making a connecting flight to London. And so it was a short flight. So they had to edit the movie down for time. Clueless was the in-flight movie. (laughs) And I know the movie so well. They were making tiny little edits, like editing lines and shots out of scenes. And I could tell what had been removed because (laughs) I can basically recite the movie. And I do want to say... They weren't in this minute, but I was outraged. I was the angriest person who's ever been on an airplane. Maybe an exaggeration, because <laughs> everything they cut was Dion and Murray. Yeah. And oh. I was really, really mad about it. I get that they're not, like, as essential to the through line of the plot, but they're just such wonderful, wonderful characters. They cut all of Murray shaving his head and keeping it real, and I was like, this is <laughs> fucking unacceptable. <laughs> Um, I mean, uh, the re- moment. My, I mean, I'm thinking more recently of um, like, uh, you know, she's all that and ten things I hate about you, um, which again they they they're both like based on like classic plays. Like I yeah. think there was this weird resurgence in the late nineties of teen movies based on other sources, which might have been the influence of Clueless. Mm-hmm. The last big one I can think of is She's the Man, which came out 10 years ago yesterday, because that was yeah. 12th Night done at a California boarding school. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there was the controversial O. Um, uh, which... No, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't mind it, because I, I love um, Julia Stiles and um, Mackay Pfeiffer, so, you know, I like that film. And I, I said this actually to the host's, um, in minute zero, which is, I think that Columbine kind of made high schools a kind of frightening place, and that kind of meant that it was a little harder for people to make, you know, like films set in high schools that were just about people being kids. But on the because other hand, kind of, I don't think yeah. you could make Heather's in a post-Columbine world because they no. almost blow up yeah. the school, and there's guns being waved around in the school and stuff. I cannot imagine <laughs> yeah. them making that movie after Columbine. I mean, it's yeah. already an incredibly harsh movie, but that would have just pushed it to being like, people would have walked out, I think. Well, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I wasn't I think... around in a pre-Columbine world enough to have like awareness no. of it. So <laughs> you guys tell me, because I don't 
No. <laughs> I don't know. There's a there's a Heather's TV series coming out, so we'll see what they do with that. <sighs> yeah. That's all I can muster. <laughs> Although I will say, I was extremely skeptical about the Heather's musical, and it is excellent. So uh, definitely check out that soundtrack if you do like teen movies, because it's a really, really fun show. <laughs> I was going to say, um, like, kind of the last big kind of teen movie that was sort of of this kind of genre that kind of like set this way was probably mean girls um and maybe 13 going on 30 but that spends most mm. of its time that's, in a a, weird that's all in the adult world where they're working at the magazine yeah i was gonna say that's kind of more like a big situation isn't it so it's it starts yeah. it starts with the kind of you know she only goes back to see mark ruffalo because she knew him in high school and so there is kind of a little bit of the kind of parallels of high school is like you know the real world in terms of the way cliques work and the way friendships work and that kind of thing um but you know most recent teen movies have all been about either you know fighting in hunger games or people dying of cancer well yeah and i'd say the i'd say the clueless renaissance kind of came to a screeching halt a little bit with uh like uh, pretty quickly with uh the american pie series Ugh. yeah which reverted teen comedies back to sex comedies. Also, talk about yeah. a movie where all the teenagers look like they're 30 years old. <laughs> Thank God, too, because people are doing all sorts of stuff. Because we quickly got into American Pie and into uh, and into the Scream era. Yeah. Where teens, where, where the slasher film came back. Yeah. And so they started veering all teen movies either towards sex comedies or towards, uh, or towards horror. horror films. Yeah. Again, because remember in the nineties, horror was dead as well. Like there was, yeah. there was nothing. Yeah. And I, sh so, I should also mention, I was going to say, I should also mention from the kind of summer of 99 was also Cruel Intentions, uh, which is also getting a TV show. Uh, so I don't, well, I don't know what's going on with all these 90s TV shows based on films coming on of it. I think that television, I mean, obviously now we're living in an era when there's a lot more television than there was when Clueless came out as a movie. But I think that television yeah. has really taken up the mantle of telling these teen high school stories. Because yeah. even though we can only think of, you know, a handful of films that kind of fall into the clueless mold, there are a lot of teen dramas and teen comedies that sort of could fall on this spectrum. It's funny, Darren, that you would say that you loved these American high school movies because my favorite <laughs> show as a teenager was Skins, which is a show from the United yeah. Kingdom about going to a British college uh and i actually found those <laughs> characters to be far 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 more relatable than any of the broader characters that i saw in america so it's just very interesting well darren watching american teen movies is like us watching harry potter movies <laughs> they're just as magical and just as unrealistic <laughs> Nothing to well, add. You nailed it. So, okay. Thank you very much to both of you for joining me. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap things up and, and, and go to plugs. Uh, I'm going to start with Shannon this time. Shannon, what do you have to plug? Uh, I am on the podcast Stage of Fools, which you can find on iTunes. You can like our Facebook page, Stage of Fools. Uh, and we're on Twitter at Stage of Fools Pod. And it's a show about the um, hilariously over-the-top drama The Royals on E! And every week my co-host and I pretty much just talk about what a crazy show it is and have some laughs. And you're about to wrap up in a couple of weeks' time, season two. This um, is true. I actually can't believe how kind of uh, how much we've been barreling through it. And I will say, since we talked about Heather's quite a bit in this episode, um, you can also find me on our friend Caroline Fulford's The Loose Cannon film podcast. 
I'm on the Heathers episode with Natalie Walker discussing <laughs> that film with a pretty critical eye. Great stuff. And uh, Phil, I believe you also have a podcast. Yes, I uh, have Deep in Bear Country, a Berenstain Bearcast. You can find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Bestain Bearcast. And it's a, I'm covering the history of the Berenstain Bears series, books, TV shows, everything from uh from its inception i'm just doing it all in chronological order episode by episode and we come out uh, every saturday and mike berenstein the berenstein bears company themselves have been in contact they are uh, very supportive of the show uh that makes me so happy a, a, a quite quite a little community is built up around it so uh, yeah. yeah we do we do episodes about the books and uh, we have a good time so thank you to both of you for joining me for this episode next week we'll be moving on to minute three i think um and i will right. i will also be the host for that minute uh, with some more fabulous guests and we finally get to to meet Dion um, and her wonderful Dr. Susian hat um, <laughs> and uh, and also we get to meet Mr. Hall and you know basically all all of the class so many friends yeah so this this like the next week is basically just going to be meeting all of the cast uh, with the exception of Josh and Ty because mm. they come later on um, so, you know, we'll get, we'll get to those eventually, but you know, thank you for listening and, and joining us and I will hear you next week. Uh, but thanks to Shannon and Phil. Thank you very much. Oh, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And good night. Thanks for listening to this episode of As If. The podcast all about Clueless. It's produced and edited by Darren Husted. This episode was hosted by me, Darren Husted, with my guests, Phil Gonzalez and Shannon Camp. Like us on Facebook at As If The Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at As If underscore podcast. And follow us on Instagram, As If Podcast. Subscribe to us on iTunes or the podcasting app of your choice. And please rate and review if you enjoy. Clueless is owned by Paramount Pictures. No infringement is intended. All rights reserved. Copyright 2016. But didn't they stop? Didn't they stop awarding lifetime achievement after Chewbacca? <laughs> They, do, you know, do you know what? I'm going to tell you a funny story. They stopped awarding Lifetime Achievement after they gave it to Clint Howard and he took it seriously. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. He, and he actually showed up and he was so taken. Yeah, by he it. thought it was a real award and not just a joke award. And oh. the producers the producers were oh, like, no. that's too sad. We can't, we can't keep doing this because... It just it was a very mo- he was a it's a very moving oh, moment. No. Oh yeah. yeah. I've never he seen re- this. <laughs> Watch Clint Howard accept the award for for I'm already so sad. In the past they'd given it in the past they'd given it to Chewbacca. Oh. They gave it to Jason Voorhees. Oh yeah. no. That's what being Ron Howard's brother will do to you. Yeah. And he accepted the award in all earnestness. Oh, bless and him. It's you're like, "Oh my god, this guy finally got an Bless award. him. <laughs> bless him. I love Clint yeah. Howard. Clint, I know you're yeah. listening. <laughs> I'm here I'm, for you, man. <laughs>